Good morning. We are here today to discuss Parshas Emor. There's actually only a couple of weeks left to this third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, and we are also progressing towards Shavuos. Parshas Emor, the title for the class, is Our Most Important Aspiration. This month, month of ER, is sponsored by the Slomiansky family in loving memory of Benil ben Ari Yaakov Halevi, Zichrono Levracha. Very important yard site, and we definitely share with the family in praying that his neshama have an aliyah and that all the good deeds inspired by yourselves, your family, uh, both for within your family and the entire community should be a merit to the elevation of his soul. This week's class is also sponsored by Sarah Slomiansky in appreciation to Rabbi Akiva's wife. Yes, it's hard to say it for his guidance and meaningful teachings. Thank you so much. Um, I do feel like I have no choice but to do what the sponsors want, but uh, just know that uh, you have inspired me to continue teaching and learning together with and from all of you. So thank you for that acknowledgement. This week's class is also sponsored by Louise Bauer for the merit of complete healing of her beloved daughter, Leah Basliba. Refua Shulema to Leah Basliba and our learning Torah should be a merit for a complete and speedy recovery for her. And of course, we pray for that for all Chola Yisrael as well. One of the starkest realities of life is that all living things die. Sorry to begin on a downer, but it is true. And sometimes we need to pay attention to that. Despite this inescapable condition of mortality, we human beings tend to push the fact of our mortality out of our consciousness most of the time. Nonetheless, for many of us, the subconscious awareness of our finite lives drives many of our behaviors. Sometimes it may drive us to escape and avoid thinking about end of life subjects and those consequences. And other times we may push ourselves to accomplish very specific things because we are at least subconsciously aware of end of life. And therefore we want to have meaningful goals and important things accomplished because we want to leave behind us legacy and impact. A question that I posed recently to myself and others, including some teenagers, is what do we know for certain that we want to accomplish before we die. In other words, let's at least deal with death to the extent that we accomplish our most important goal, right? A lot of people have their bucket list of, you know, the 50 things that they wanna do before it's too late. Just put that to the side for a minute uh, in terms of experiencing pleasures of life. And let's just talk about what's one thing, even just one thing that we want to accomplish for certain before our end arrives. Now, interestingly, I did find that even some of the younger people that I posed this question to asserted that they want to build a close-knit family of their own. That was personally very heartening for me to hear. The question that subsequently occurred to me is the subject of our class. Philosophically speaking, is there an objective that is quote unquote, most important? In other words, is there some one particular philosophic truth that should be the goal for all human beings. 
In today's class, we will posit a yes to that question. There is one particular thing that is meant to be the most important achievement that we definitely accomplish in our lives. Now, as an aside, I happen to believe that this is true for all human beings, including non-Jews, but that for Jews, it is a mandated responsibility. So now let's enter our Parsha. Parsha's Emmer deals primarily with specific laws of purity for Kohanim and other priestly requirements, such as who the Kohanim may marry and what blemishes or other factors may disqualify a Kohen from serving. That's one large section of the Parsha. Additionally, there's another large portion of sentences that discusses blemishes of animal offerings and other animal disqualifications. We'll get in a moment to the fact that an animal is not allowed to be offered for any sacrifice unless it is at least in its eighth day of life. That's an example of an animal disqualification out of offering. The first seven days, it's not allowed to be offered. In addition to those blemishes and animal disqualifications, we have all the Torah holidays, including Shabbos. And at the end of the parsha, there's the lighting of the menorah, as well as the infamous blasphemer, the one who cursed Hashem, and the fact of his subsequent execution by stoning. Now, this is quite the array. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a varied interest type of parsha. These are very different subjects, right? So just a brief glance at this listing immediately instigates in the mind the obvious question of the connection between these subjects. What do these specific Kohen requirements, sacrificial blemishes and disqualifications have to do with holidays, menorah, and blasphemy? How do any of these topics logically connect? So in order to delve into this discussion more deeply, we will look at one set of sentences in the Parsha that deals with a few requirements for all animal sacrifices. As we will soon see, this paragraph also contains the major Torah obligation for us to give up our lives to sanctify the name of Hashem. Now, we didn't even mention that in our brief synopsis of the Parsha because it's only a couple of sentences and the other subjects take up a lot of room. So in addition to some laws relating to the animals contained in this parasha is the mitzvah that we call Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying the name of Hashem, which on one end of the spectrum requires martyrdom. That means a person must give up their life and not violate the Torah in many circumstances as we will discuss. So this is now chapter 22, sentences 27 through 33. Says the Torah, when an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall stay seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day forward, it is acceptable as an offering by fire to Hashem. However, no animal, uh, whether it be cattle or flock or whatever, shall be slaughtered on the same day with its young. Now that actually, according to the rabbis, refers specifically to a mother animal and its young, is never allowed to be slaughtered on the same day. And in fact, in Jewish law, when many sacrifices were being brought, such as before the holidays, a shochet or a seller of animals was required to inform the purchaser if the mother or the child were sold that day, so that people would know that they would have to wait till the next day. 
Okay. Anyways, the Torah continues regarding these offerings. It shall be eaten on the same day. If it's a Thanksgiving offering, it needs to be eaten on the same day. Only in, leave it until the morning, meaning past the morning, you cannot leave it. I am Hashem. You shall faithfully observe my commandments. I am Hashem. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified in the midst of the Jewish people. I Hashem who sanctify you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Hashem. Okay, so now let's do a little summary of this paragraph. No mother animal and a child may be slaughtered on the same day. An animal must be in its eighth day of life or later in order to be brought as an offering. A Thanksgiving offering, what we call a carbon toda, saying thank you, right? That offering must be eaten in the same day that it is offered. So basically it has less than a 24 hour window, uh, really, you know, about 12 or 18 hours at most. And we need to keep all of these commandments. We shall not desecrate the name of Hashem and we must sanctify the name of Hashem. Now, as an important aside, we have this sentence in the middle of these, you know, laws of the animals that, and sanctifying the name of Hashem says you must keep all the commandments. So over here, Ramban says that that sentence which says keep all the commandments refers specifically to the animal sacrifice laws that we were just discussing and some earlier mentioned in the parish. Rashi, however, says that it's a general obligation relating to all the mitzvahs of the Torah, keep all the commandments. So in the middle of nowhere, the Torah suddenly says, by the way, keep all the commandments. Very strange. And now we're going to discuss that further because we're going to look at the Rashi on a couple of these sentences. It says, and you shall keep, you should keep them and you should do them, says Rashi. What does it mean to keep them? That refers to the Mishnah, the study, the learning of the commandments. What does it mean that you should do? That refers to the performance of the commandments and it's talking about all the commandments. And then the Torah says, you shall not profane my holy name, says Rashi, by transgressing my commandments willfully. So the simple explanation of Rashi, which is definitely how many commentaries understand, is that if, God forbid, an enemy comes to a Jew and says, listen, all Jews are now being persecuted for their religious performance of the Torah, if you don't eat this piece of pig, or if you put on these tefillin, as an example, you will die. And this is done in a public setting. Uh, a different time is a discussion of what constitutes a public setting. The Jew must give up their life for every commandment in the Torah. That's what we call Kiddush Hashem. And it specifically applies when there's a general persecution that is happening against our people. When that is happening, if any non-Jew, any person really, threatens a Jew that I will kill you unless you violate any commandment of the Torah, any commandment of the Torah, that Jew is required to give up their life. And that comes from this sentence, which says, you shall not profane my name, and then continues with, and you shall sanctify my name, which is what Rashi continues to discuss. What is the meaning of sanctify my name? This implies a positive act of sanctification. Abandon yourself to martyrdom, says Rashi, and hallow my name. That means sanctify, make holy my name. So I might think that this command applies even to the Jews or, or, or a single Jew when he is alone, meaning when there are no Jews present and this other person is bidding him to transgress the Torah. The scripture, however, says amidst the children of Israel, the obligation to give up one's name is really in front of other people, specifically in front of other Jews. And this is 
says Rashi, very important thing to know is that when a person is offering themselves to martyrdom, they have to offer themselves with firm determination and no thought that God will miraculously save them. So when a person is in this situation, they can't think to themselves, oh, look, of course, I'll give up, you know, I'll quote unquote, give up my life for God and God will save me. As we know, Avraham experienced by the Kivshan Heish, as well as uh, Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah by the fiery furnace, they gave up their lives and they were saved. But Rashi specifically says that this is what we find by Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, great prophets of the Jewish people, that they did not offer themselves from, for martyrdom expecting a miracle. And he brings a sentence to this effect that they had no idea whether or not that they would be saved and they still gave up their life. And so therefore that's the obligation of martyrdom in the, case, in the time of religious persecution, the person must give up their life with zero expectation of being saved. So we see from these comments of Rashi that the verses in our parsha are talking about keeping the commandments in general, learning about them and keeping them, as well as not desecrating the name of Hashem and sanctifying the name of Hashem, which also refers to all of the commandments. Now, as we know, this paragraph is speaking of the major obligation also to give up our lives when enemies threaten us with death. So here are two questions. Number one, this is a stunning digression. In the same paragraph in the Torah, we're talking about that the animal <clears throat> needs to be eight days old before it can be offered. And a mother and her young cannot be slaughtered on the same day. And we need to only eat the Thanksgiving offering within the same day. And then we talk about not desecrating the name of Hashem and giving up one's life in a time of persecution. What in the world are these two ideas doing with each other? We have animal laws, general thing about, you know, keeping uh, all the mitzvahs in the Torah and Kiddush Hashem. So really our two questions are, how do we connect this paragraph with the idea of martyrdom? That's question number one. Question number two is how do we connect this idea, uh, meaning the animals and martyrdom? And question number two is how do we connect the general obligation to keep all the laws of the Torah with this paragraph. So I would therefore like to suggest that we need to re-examine what is most important in every human being's life. And in other words, what makes existence real? Because I think we can agree <clears throat> that the best selling product in the world, bar none, would be of the obtaining of infinite life. Right? If somebody could sell a product that would guarantee immortality, that would be the product that would win any other product in the world. So the fact of existence outside of Hashem being temporary is a huge problem because everybody is really pining for something which is long lasting and permanent. Even this idea that we started that everybody has an aspiration to leave a legacy and a major impact in the world. <coughs> it's primarily driven by virtue of the fact that a person is not infinite. But if a person were infinite, then they know that they have a major contribution and importance in the world because they continue forever. So what we need to recognize is a very important philosophic truth that is taught to us by the Torah and our rabbis. Anything that exists outside of Hashem is necessarily temporary, 
and only exists to the, to the extent that Hashem wills it to exist. Okay, that's the only way that something exists because Hashem wills it into existence. So what's taught to us by the Torah is that the only human beings that will continue to exist are those human beings who recognize the truth of Hashem's existence and that Hashem is infinite. So that's a very interesting construct. Nothing can exist permanently unless Hashem wills it, but Hashem will only will things into existence infinitely if in fact those things recognize Hashem as being the integral major existing being in the world. Now, <clears throat> there's a very interesting teaching in the Talmud, which is very relevant to this discussion. And I hope everybody will bear with me just a couple more minutes because we really have to build this philosophic premise before we can make it practical in our lives. The rabbis tell us that all Jews have a share in the world to come, but a Jew that can lose his share in the world to come, meaning in the infinite future, is a Jew who denies the resurrection of the dead and essentially the infinite future. A Jew that doesn't agree <clears throat> that there is a resurrection and an infinite future does not experience a resurrection and an infinite future. I mean, he might exist, uh, experience a temporary resurrection and get punished, but other than that, he doesn't, he doesn't have it. He doesn't get it. Now, at the end of the class, I'm sure we're going to get the questions, what about all those Jews that don't accept it? We're going to talk about it at the end. But first, let me share with you just an understanding of why this is so. Why would it be? Okay, listen, we know that this is a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around the fact of an infinite future, right? That's not something very easy to understand. We don't none of us know what it actually looks like, what's comprised of our existence in the future. In other words, what, what it's going to be like. But at the same time, we're saying that if a person denies it, then they don't have a share in it. So that's like a little bit tough pill to swallow. So I want to give you an example that is a legend. It's a fable. I don't, I don't pretend that it's true, but it's an interesting fable. And the legend goes like this, that when the original settlers of America the pilgrims landed on this country of the United States of America, and they were met by the Native American Indians. The legend says that the Native American Indians were not able to see the ships upon which these pilgrims arrived, even though their ships were right in front of them. So there you had, I believe it's the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria docked or harbored at the water's edge. And the Native American Indians were not able to see it. And the reason is because since they had never seen a ship like that in their lives, even when it was there, their minds rejected the existence of it. They were in denial that such a thing could exist and therefore they didn't see it. Now, I agree that that is likely a legend, but the concept that we deny what is right in front of us because we have a powerful mental reason to deny it is definitely true. Great example is that usually the last people to recognize an older person as suffering from a severe mental illness, such as Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's especially, are the people that see them every day because they continue to rationalize a way that they're, okay, maybe they're a little forgetful, but everything's fine. And the truth is that very often things are not fine. 
the people that are closest to the situation, they kind of acclimate themselves to their denial, and therefore they tend to not recognize it. The same thing is true about this legend that the Native American Indians could not mentally comprehend the existence of these huge ships. And therefore, even though the ships were right in front of them, they did not see them. But we use all of that just to explain that a person who denies the infinite future cannot mentally conceive of an infinite future. And therefore, even if they were presented with it, they couldn't experience it. It wouldn't exist for them. And this is one of the reasons it's so important to not just automatically deny things that you think are not true. You have to at least explore and see if they might be true or if some version of them might be true so that if they are, you can actually see it and not live in a false reality. So the fact is that the recognition of Hashem as the true reality is the only real way that we can have an infinite existence because only Hashem exists really for infinity and only within the construct of a universe where Hashem exists, is it possible to exist forever with his infinite existence? Now, this recognition and affirmation is the um, important factor and accomplishment of our lives. That is our most important aspiration. We're going, we're going to go back into the parish and, and discuss the questions very clearly, but I just want to mention and state now for the record that the most important things that we can do in our life is to concretize for real that Hashem exists. Not only to ourselves, we have to concretize that for other people as well because that's the only thing that actually will bring an infinite experience for all human beings. Now, I know this sounds very philosophical, but let's just think for a moment about the following concept. The people that we most admire in our lives, who are the people that we most admire? And invariably, the people that we most admire, the people who we look up to, the people who have impacted us the most, are those people who somehow, either directly or indirectly, convey the truth of God qualities, whether it's generosity of spirit and selflessness, or it's integrity, or it's the steadfast conviction that life is important, survivor skills, purpose. All of the people who live those ideals are the people that carry the most impact in the world, not only because they impress people, but because it is that very conveyance of truth that will allow for existence to be infinite. Because that's the ultimate, ultimate future. God exists, God qualities are what's important. Human beings who acknowledge that affirm that, recognize that, and internalize those God qualities will be part of the infinite future. That is our, therefore, most important aspiration. Now, this recognition and affirmation of the truth of the existence of Hashem is what we call Kiddush Hashem. That's what it means. Kiddush Hashem means the very clear messaging that Hashem is real, 
real, real, real, in the most possible real sense of the word. Infinite, substantial, impactful, and of course, then you can go into all powerful and everything else. But on top of the fact that we are asserting those truths is the fact that we assert them is what makes us real. That's the key. We assert the truth that God is real, that gives us real existence. And that's really why martyrdom makes sense. Martyrdom makes sense because this life, which is temporary, is for sure not the main point. And the main point of this temporary life is to make a strong assertion statement of the fact that Hashem is real. So we now go back to our paragraph and we can really understand both this paragraph and the entire penumbra, so to speak, of ideas that are in this parsha. So the paragraph starts with the idea of animal sacrifice and that an animal needs to be eight days old before it can be brought as a sacrifice. So first, let's just talk about sacrifice, then we'll talk about these eight days because that also happens to be very interesting. Let's kind of clear our minds on the topic of sacrifice. Everybody is bothered about sacrifices that what does anything have to do with animals? Why does God care? Why should we kill animals? All of that, and that's all true. But the fundamental concept of sacrifice is that we give up that which is important to us for our most important things. That's what sacrifice means. Sacrifice means we give up what is most important to us for our most important people or our most important goals, right? People give up their money for that which is most important to them. People give up their time for that which is most important. It's problematic that unfortunately people give up their money and time for frivolous things and that's totally wasteful. But the idea of sacrifice is that we recognize that we're giving up something for the most important things. That's what sacrifice is. Now, in the time of animals and both in terms of economic, economics and food and, and uh, major assets that a person had, that was certainly a very important asset, an animal. And then of course you have the idea that an animal is supposed to represent the life of a human being, which we mentioned last week. So it's a way of saying that we're conveying our lives towards the truth that Hashem exists. That's what sacrifice is. You give it to a higher power. The idea is that you're saying that the higher power is most important and you're gonna give up everything for that higher power. And the truth is that every prayer service is about that. We recognize that Hashem is king and he is what's most important in our lives. And our service to him is that we're living our lives to do that which is most important for Hashem. Now, the most important thing that we can do, so to speak, for Hashem is to declare the truth of existence of Hashem, because that's good for all of human beings to exist infinitely. And so the idea of sacrificing an animal is exactly that. And therefore, the Torah tells us that you have to wait to the eighth day. And this is really explained well by the Balaturim. Kitzer Balaturim explains that if we were to sacrifice the child of an animal within seven days, the person sacrificing the animal might instead be worshiping either the Sunday upon which this animal was born or the Monday upon which this animal was born, meaning the heaven and earth or the water or the trees. And this is what people did very often. They would bring sacrifices to natural forces, the sun and the moon, other energies in creation. We wait seven days in order to show that as concrete 
as the seven days of existence are, there's something else beyond the seven days of existence called God. And so the idea of the eighth day is to recognize that creation is temporary and that when we're sacrificing, we're not sacrificing to anything in this temporal world, we're sacrificing to that which is infinite and beyond this world, which is always the number eight. Okay, so that's a way to understand why we're waiting eight days before sacrificing any animal to, for any sacrifice at all. And so therefore we can now understand that what this paragraph is really finally talking about and concluding uh, many of the subjects in the book of Leviticus is that as we are now finishing the discussion of the Kohanim and the animals, we have to recognize that what our lives are all about is living in this world with the some major focus that God is real and we make him a part of our existence, a fundamental part, a focal point in our existence. And so therefore the, the Torah is not digressing to this idea, now keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. That's the whole idea of any sacrifice. The idea of any sacrifice is that whatever God says is most important is what's most important. So keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah because that's really the idea of every sacrifice. And even though there are certain laws in particular sacrifice that are being mentioned here, it's really a conclusion in many ways of all the laws of the Kohanim and sacrifices. And that's why the Torah then says that your whole life is a sacrifice to God, to what's most important. We are the sacrifices. You know, to put it simply, we spend so much money on every holiday and Shabbos. It takes so much time for preparation and setup and cleanup. Right? And before we turn around, here's the next holiday upon us, not to mention Shabbos every week. Right. Of course, our lives are revolving around the truth of Hashem's existence. And that's what Kiddush Hashem is really all about. Kiddush Hashem just happens to be in an example where there is religious persecution. Since you understand that your whole life is really about making God the central focus, of course, if it's a time of religious persecution where they're trying to get rid of Jews, get rid of the fact in the world that God exists and trying to convey that to all of mankind, which is a terrible thing for the world, then of course you have to give up your life to say the opposite. No, God is real. The Torah is real. The truths of God are real. And life is only to serve that truth. So of course we give up our lives for that. And that's why it's part of the same paragraph. So what we have to really recognize is that our most important contribution is the one that makes us and the world permanent. Permanent doesn't mean this world. We are too blinded all the time into thinking about this world, whether you like the Chavetz Chaim story um, or any other of the Gedolim stories to talk about the transient nature of this world, instead of thinking about you know expenses, expensive pieces of furniture to decorate your home that a person might benefit from for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, Let's think about what's going to be part of our infinite future, which are the good deeds that we do, which is the integrity with which we live, which is the example of teaching that we help others to understand the truth of Hashem's existence. That is our real legacy. Of course, that is what the rabbis mean, that righteous people, their good deeds are their main toledos, their main legacy. I know it's hard to you know, kind of live this way all the time, but it's so important to really put it front and center in our minds 
that nothing matters but acting with impeccable integrity and incredible generosity of spirit. You know, the fact of good existence, you know, existing, you know, every good story is about the triumph of good over evil. The fact of good existing, that means the fact of someone being generous is a tremendously powerful reminder of the truth that God exists. Very simple. Somebody who's genuinely generous has no reason to be generous, right? The whole concept of being altruistic or generous defies logic. In fact, I once had the opportunity to ask uh, somebody who unfortunately went astray, uh, their children actually stayed uh, Jewish and religious, but this woman went astray and I asked her, you know, why did you have children? What's the point of that? And she really had no good answer. The, the idea that we have children is by definition a giving. If we're willing to give and not just to take, that means we're affirming the truth of God's existence because there's something in the fabric of creation that says it makes sense to give, which of course is what God did when he created the world. So we have to remember that these acts of kindness, these, these kind of incredible uh, demonstrations of selflessness really prove concretely that God exists. And that's what matters in this world. And that's our ultimate impact. And that really needs to be our ultimate aspiration. So now we understand the topics of the Parsha, and then I'll take, I'll just tie up the topics of the Parsha together, and then I'll take everybody's questions or comments. The Parsha is very simple. The Parsha is about not desecrating the name of Hashem, but instead living a life that completely reflects and is filled with declarations of the fact of Hashem's existence. We talk about the Kohen. The Kohen is the most um, real life example of the servant of Hashem. And what the Torah says, if you read it at the beginning, that when a Kohen does not keep himself pure and is not a proper servant to Hashem, he's desecrating the name of Hashem. Because the whole existence of a Kohen is to serve this ideal in a very, very palpable way. He serves in the Holy Temple. He's always ready to teach the people. He doesn't, you know, uh, work on providing for himself like the other Jews. He prepares to be a servant of Hashem. Not living that way is a desecration of Hashem's name. It, it, it ruins, it destroys, it tears at the reality of the fact of Hashem's existence. And then, of course, we have the laws of animals, which also improper offerings, improper sacrifices, is also belittling the honor to Hashem. That's also a desecration of the name of Hashem. And then you have the laws that we mentioned about the animals in terms of the age appropriateness or not to slaughter a mother and its young on the same day. I didn't talk about the mother and its young, but it probably has something to do with the fact that we don't, we're not looking, animal sacrifice is not about destroying animals, getting rid of animals, which is what it would be if you were destroying the mother and its young on the same day. Instead, what you're trying to do is have animals create more animals, just that sometimes there's a sacrifice, right? You're not trying to take the animals out of existence, which would be somewhat indicated by getting rid of a mother and his child on the same day. Instead, you're saying, no, the animals should exist, but there are reasons sometimes to sacrifice animals. And then, of course, we, we explained Chilol Hashem and Kiddush Hashem already. And then if the Shabbos and the holidays is all about living with Hashem as the focal point of our lives. The menorah, by the way, is also the light of Hashem in the world, reflecting 
out to the world that the light from the Holy Temple, which is where God resides, is what brings light to the world. That's the menorah. And then finally, we have the example of the one who curses Hashem, which is the one that's trying to cancel Hashem out of existence. In fact, in fact the Talmud tells us that the classic uh, verbiage of the one who would curse God is a person who says, God should, God forbid, so to speak, destroy himself. That's what it is. It's like trying to get rid of God. It's like saying God should get rid of himself, God forbid. That's what the curse is saying. That's, that's what it means to curse God. In, in, the, in the Talmudic vernacular, it's called Daka Yossi. Yes, Yossi, Yossi is a euphemism for God. It's like Yossi should hit Yossi. And that's a euphemism for God. That's what a blasphemer does. And that's the undoing of the main point of the Parsha, which is that we are making concrete the name of Hashem. And, you know, this is, of course, why the Shema Yisrael and the Aleinu are so important in our tradition, because it's all about Hashem Echad, we're declaring the truth of God's name forever and ever. And in the future, we know by Yom Hashem Echad that the entire world will know that. And that's why Kiddush Hashem is specifically in front of other people. The people that we have to be concerned about is not only ourselves, we have to be concerned about what other people are hearing. Because as we know, what people begin to think automatically becomes what other people begin to think. That, that's what happens. That's the way it spreads. That's why the insanity of the world is the way that it is. Everything that, you know, even insane things can spread if other people believe that other people believe it. And that's why it's so important to stand up for the truth. And the main truth is that God is real and that everything that the Torah says will bring about a, a permanent future for humanity is in fact what will bring about a permanent future for humanity. And that's what we have to declare as true. And that's what we have to live our lives with Kiddush Hashem. Okay, questions or comments? In the room? It was beautiful. Okay. <laughs> we had a compliment. Anyone else? Yeah. I was. Okay. Yes. I thought, I thought um, giving up one's life was for a few, just the three. Okay, so let's just clarify, um, as is being asked here in the yeshiva, there are three, what we call the three yaharog al-ya'avur, the three cardinal principles that a person always needs to give up their lives for those three things. That means even if it's not a time of religious persecution, if a gun is put to someone's head and the person holding the gun says, kill this other person or I'll kill you, we're not allowed to murder. Or a gun, and it's not a time of religious persecution. A person needs to give up their life. If a gun is put to someone's head and says, um, you, uh, you must uh, commit adultery or idolatry, we're not allowed to commit adultery or idolatry. We have to give up our lives, even if it's not a time of religious persecution. However, if a gun is put to a person's head and it said violate Shabbos, a person should violate Shabbos. Hmm. Question even if a person is allowed to give up their lives. That's a question. Maybe they're allowed to. But they, they're certainly allowed to violate Shabbos because it's not a time of religious persecution. And the same thing with any of the other mitzvahs of the Torah. But if it's a time of religious persecution, then even the, so to speak, lightest obligations in the Torah must be kept instead of giving up our lives. Because in a time of religious persecution, what we're saying is, the truth is, popularity is going to take hold. And we will be able to give up the idea 
of the truth of God's existence for ourselves and for the world. That we can never do. Therefore, there's a mitzvah to give up our lives at that time. We can't lean in to the populist thinking of getting rid of God. That's why we have to give up our lives in that, in that circumstance. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A time of Holocaust, time of Inquisition, all those things really a person needed to give up their lives because it's a time of getting rid of the Jews, getting rid of the Jewish God, which is the only real version of truth. Yes, hope I never tested. I'm in. Rita? I'm really not sure what my question is, so I'm not sure that I'm going to put it forward, but, um, you know, you use the word, con you know, I'm mulling the word concretize Hashem's existence, and I understand that from what you've given over to mean um, it's all by our actions and behaviors that we can is that is that premise correct we only can concretize Hashem's existence by our own behavior as it relates to Torah is that the given here we can only concretize say it again Hashem's existence by by our own behaviors as they relate to Torah and in this world is that I, I just want to understand you know that i understand this yeah no no i'm with you so pretty much what i'm hesitating on is that it's possible to concretize the existence of hashem without formally knowing that what you're doing is torah or torah dick huh. okay, in other words it's still going to be in line with what the torah says right but it's not a person might not even know that but nonetheless, it speaks to the truth of Hashem's infinite existence and veracity and benevolence, because the, the, the real truth is the fact of benevolence, the fact of being able to be other-centered only makes sense in a God-centric world, which is why, uh, which is why anytime, uh, you know, there is dictatorship happening in the world, anti-Semitism is one of the things to immediately occur because that is the way to get rid of the notion of fairness, equality, generosity, not thinking just about what's good for me. Okay, so then I guess the follow-up to that would be to make the case to those that we are interacting with to connect the points that, you know, the fact that they're doing this does declare that there is more and there is, a, you know, a Hashem and, you know, that, that yeah. is. But yeah, there, 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 there is no good, there, there is no, okay, let me say it to you this way. There is no good way to explain that anything exists without God, okay? And there is no good way to explain selflessness without God. There's, okay. there's just no good philosophic explanation. People will say, yeah, you know, that's just the way they're, that's just the way certain people are. That's not an explanation. But if there's God, then selflessness actually makes sense. But given that's the given, in conversations that we have with so many uh, who aren't yet in the Torah community of observance, how does one move it along? I, I'm not, you know, I agree with everything you're saying and I understand it. You know, it's clear to me. How does one move a person, let's say, who's selfless into being uh, how focused? Can you, how 
do you connect it so it becomes a more formal recognition as opposed to just being a good person is, I guess, the, the challenge of all care of workers. <laughs> but I'm just curious, is there a magic bullet or any ingredient that you kind of, when you know you have somebody who at least sees it, where you go with that, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis outside of communal, you know, programs? It's a great question. I, 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 don't, um, I don't have a magic bullet. I do think that acknowledging their generosity and trying to be um, helpful to them, how they can expand their generosity, and then trying to think with them how they can encourage other people to be generous might, might lead to some of those conversations. The why, you know, asking yeah. themselves, keep pushing the why. Well, first push the generosity and say, this is yeah. fantastic. Now, why are other people not thinking this way, you know? Okay. Why is it for you, not for them? Thank you. That's excellent because yeah. once they are in, at least the why becomes an open door for more discussion. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah. No, absolutely. Aaron your hand is raised. Yeah, I just want to make an interesting um, point. Uh, as a fundraiser, um, you would think that you know giving money away is like you're saying is doesn't make any sense if you don't believe in God. Uh, I don't. I don't know if this is a but, but there's a, a fascinating point that they teach you in fundraising 101, is that it actually makes people feel good. Now that probably makes no sense unless there is a God. But it's not so much um, that oh uh, I can't justify my giving away of myself. Yes, I can because it makes me feel good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, totally true. It's it's always surprising to me whenever I get the chance to ask people what are the happiest moments that you remember in your life that really lasted. It's generally some act of giving. Um, I just want to jump in, Rabbi Nachtim, uh, that Please. sitting around the table for everybody to hear legacy of people who have been uber generous in the world at a Shabbos table and listening to the third generation speak about their grandparents. I once asked a table that same question, you know, what about your grandparents? Are you, do you love the most? That idea of what they vested in is, was universally in different ways expressed as what they connected to the, their grandparents were the ones who understood that. And I, I think that it's, it clearly is purposeful and it lasts the generations. People understand the value within it. And um, these came from young kids, teenagers, young adults, because it was a huge room and I put it out there. And I don't think they were following like sheep. I think they really thought about it. So yeah, it, it yeah, confirms what you're saying. Thank you. Awesome. That's, uh, that's very helpful. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. I believe Rabbi. that, uh, I imagine, I'm pretty sure my father is having class. Um, my mother was just on, so I, I expect so. So please zoom over to that. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Rabbi.